I want to explore some of the visual tropes that structure Xavier Herbert's 1975 novel, Poor Fellow, My Country. Herbert is often described as being ahead of his time in his concern with the plight of Aboriginal people. Poor Fellow followed 37 years after Capricornia, published in 1938, and echoes the themes and settings of the earlier novel. Both novels set out to expose the hypocrisy and injustice of the treatment of Aboriginal people, especially in the North. However, I argue that it also reflects many shifts in seeing and representing race relations that had taken place during the intervening years. In the end, I suggest Poor Fellow should be seen as a reenactment, set in Herbert's and the nation's past and coloured by more recent social changes facilitated and communicated through the camera's lens. Like all reenactments, it is written in the past conditional. It asks, what if things had been different? In each novel, Herbert explores themes of hybrid identity and especially, as Russell McDougall notes, sexual relations between white men and Aboriginal women. Herbert's fascination was originally prompted by an international genre concerned with interracial sex in the tropics. Unusually, Herbert saw mixed descent not as a problem, but rather as offering a multicultural or hybrid future. So in this slide, you can see Herbert at the age of 37 in 1938 in a portrait held by the State Library of New South Wales. Um, this is, um, it's inscribed on the back that this is the day uh, that he heard that he'd won the Sequicentenary Library Prize. So what were these major social changes that intervened between the two novels? This 30-year period saw the outbreak and conclusion of World War II, the adjustments and optimism of the 1950s, and the turmoil and activism of the 1960s. I want to examine especially the post-war use of images of violence and atrocity that became integral to demands for human rights and decolonisation around the world. Some scholars of human rights have gone so far as to claim that we can only understand rights when we see their violation. I think this is too narrow, but I do agree uh, that the visual culture that developed after the war, born of the confluence of new photojournalistic technologies with the atrocity of war, did give uh, photographic imagery a new power. By the 1960s, international developments were affecting Australia too facilitated by global visual media that allowed images and footage to be shared around the world. A key event that raised international outrage was uh, the March 1960 Sharpeville Massacre, when South Australian police opened fire on black anti-apartheid demonstrators. So you can see here the great um, the police violence that was enacted on the protesters before the massacre, and then its bleak aftermath. So black and white photographs of the scattered corpses documented this, this terrible aftermath and focused attention on indigenous treatment around the world. Australians were also very much aware of racial clashes in the, in the United States of America over these years as key events in the African-American civil rights movement were viewed by television and popular media. As historian Jennifer Clark has argued, changed was hastened by a transnational intellectual context shaped by decolonisation uh, in British and French Africa. 
In the United States, media and photography had long been powerful tools in black hands, and the civil rights movement made active and comprehensive use of photography, seizing on the ability of photographs to convey political meaning. In May 1963, for example, the world was shocked by images from Birmingham, Alabama, that showed black children, students, uh, and protesters felled by water cannons or attacked by dogs. In 1964, Martin Luther King praised the crucial role of photographic evidence in imprisoning police brutality at Birmingham within a luminous glare, revealing the naked truth to the whole world and disrupting Southerners' self-image of patience and expertise in managing racial affairs. Shocking, violent photographs became the embodiment of truth. In Australia, Aboriginal activists and white campaigners also made effective use of images of degradation to reveal ill-treatment and argue for rights. As early as 1928, uh, Dr William Delano Walker had photographed conditions at Alice Springs' bungalow home for half-caste children, although these had limited circulation, being confined to a confidential government report. After the war, it became common to photograph fringe-dweller camps, sometimes likened to Nazi concentration camps. Poor Fellow also makes frequent reference to Nazis as the embodiment of evil, and Jewish characters such as Rivka um, emerge as damaged but transcendent, a force for good. By the 1930s, campaigners such as Dr Charles Duguid, medical doctor Charles Duguid, used images of ill-treatment such as neck chains to argue for reform. So this 1936 uh, article, for example, juxtaposes a full-length photograph of an Aboriginal man in chains with a neat photographic portrait of the same man after three months' humane treatment. So here he's using this photographic contrast to demonstrate the injustice done to Aboriginal people. So by 1975, when Poor Fellow was published, the media, and particularly photojournalism, had become a significant force for influencing public opinion and reforming Aboriginal policy. There are two moments in the novel that I want to focus on that show how Herbert was drawing on these new social currents to reimagine 1930s Darwin. First, the revelatory power of photojournalism is deployed to expose poor conditions in the Carlin compound, where Herbert himself had worked as superintendent between October 1835 and 1836. In Poor Fellow, the obnoxious Dr Cuthbert Cobberty represents the real-life Cecil Cook, uh, who had been Chief Medical Officer and Chief Protector of Aborigines since 1927. Cook was a proponent of breeding out the colour by uplifting half-caste Aboriginal women to the status of wives. He was also an, an enthusiastic supporter of removing children to institutions, reporting in 1934 that practically all half-caste children of both sexes formerly left to live with Aboriginals in compounds and bush camps have been removed to half-caste institutions under government control. Cook, however, ignored the terrible conditions prevailing within these, uh, these compounds and homes. So it wasn't until 30, 1937, uh, when a range of complaints were made, that reform began. In Poor Fellow, conditions in the Carling compound and the half-caste home for children 
are a major thread of critique, as upon her arrival, the young schoolteacher and Aboriginal protector, Alfie Candlemas, immediately begins to institute reform, taking over cooking food for the children, for example. As acting superintendent, Herbert had reported in 1936 that the porridge cooked the day before already was sour and roped from the mould in it. And when doused with the thin milk, gave out the corpses of weevils by the score. The bread was even worse, stringy grey wrapped around congealed glue, the whole cased in charcoal. The tea had most of the leaves floating on top. So in the novel, Alfie agrees to reveal her experience of the compound to the abrasive journalist Faye McPhee, and a trap is set for the wicked Captain Shane, entailing sabotage of the telephone exchange, a dictaphone, and a hidden microphone. Trumping this boy's own scenario, however, is the photographic evidence obtained by McPhee, who organises a flight that actually lands in Carlin Compound to take photographs that will serve as evidence for the poor conditions of its inmates. McPhee's story appears under great banner headlines, terrific indictment of official callousness, causing a national stir as well as a massive local scandal. Alfie complains about the lack of effect of this expose, but McPhee argues that it's working slowly. Every time you hit the bastards, you put a crack in them and their rotten system, and eventually they and it are going to fall to pieces. The second moment I want to look at in, in Poor Fellow concerns the treatment of Prindy, the beautiful quarter-caste child. As Janine Lane has suggested, the plot of Poor Poor fellow in my country is a custody battle for Prindy. The perfect golden-skinned child is made to bear the hope of the entire nation, as Francis Devlin Glass argues. None more memorable, perhaps, than the moment he is lured into Alibaba's golden cinch net by the power of music and is thought to be an Indian god, all shiny gold of skin and tousled hair, so luminous of eye and calm. In a powerful episode, Prindy and his child bride, Savitra, are arrested, chained by the neck, and taken by train to Port Palmerston, or Darwin. However, his shrewd grandfather, Jeremy de Lacey, Herbert's own alter ego, arranges for a reception by the press. As Dinny the policeman steps onto the platform with the two chained children sh shackled to his wrist, pop, pop, like little gunshots, but with the blaze of lightning. And again, pop, pop, flash, flash. Everybody for the moment blinded and too astounded to speak. Dinny's superior officer hisses at him. For Christ's sake, Dinny, what did you have to do that for? Dinny said in a strangled voice. It was only for their protection, sir. I didn't want him jumping out of the train. And now you've got him jumping right into the front page of bloody truth. Police brutality to innocent Aboriginal children, you goddamn bloody stupid bastard. Later, when Prindy is being rushed by motor car to Alice Springs to be locked up in a boys' home, this newspaper story is the means of his rescue. His captor Eddie stops at the Boulder Creek pub, filled with European immigrants and refugees who had paid attention to the article. So Herbert writes, 
and those who could not read English particularly paid attention to the pictures in it. And not being Australians and bred to regard Aboriginal persons as not quite human, they might have had very different feelings from what generally would be felt about children chained by the neck and shackled to a lanky, bearded, laughing policeman. So, neck chains had been used to restrain Aboriginal prisoners from the late 19th century across Northern Australia. It was only in the late 1920s that the use began to be debated by some, and not until 1959 that they were finally outlawed. They were not customarily used on children, however, so here Herbert has enhanced the scene with his usual melodrama. Such images were used by campaigners, particularly after World War II. For example, in December 1946, in the Melbourne Herald, the anthropologist Donald Thompson finally published a photograph he had taken of an event uh, that he'd witnessed at Arakoon on Cape York 14 years earlier. He'd witnessed five people being summarily arrested on the word of the superintendent, the men neck-chained and marched off on foot to Laura in, in midsummer heat uh, and ultimately to end up on Palm Island, the penal settlement. His photograph of this event and the terrible conditions at the mission became the basis for his activism after the war. By 1975, the year that Poor Fellow was published, neck-chained prisoners had become an icon of colonial oppression and injustice as they remain today. Used, for example, um, this, this is uh, Bertel's 1910 image, was reused in a land rights poster during the early 1970s. So, in conclusion, Poor Fellow was a historical novel set in Herbert's and the nation's past. Written across the tumultuous decades of post-war change and dissent, in Poor Fellow, Herbert is reimagining his time in Darwin and how things might have been different. He is harnessing the power of the intervening years and their social change and technologies of activism to reimagine 1930s Darwin and its rigid social control, to challenge the authorities and the terrible conditions he witnessed. Alfie Candlemas quickly banishes the mouldy, ropey porridge Herbert had condemned, for example. The neck chain's stolen children make front page news and embarrassed the authorities two decades before the stolen generations became mainstream. These moments point to Herbert's utopian what-if or past conditional uh, and his mode of seeing the North. For the older Herbert, post-war social change and especially civil rights campaigns that had challenged the world through media allowed him to reimagine the scenes of his youth as what might have been. Through this past conditional lens, he reenacts his youth and the Darwin he had experienced during the 1930s as if, as if his own view had been shared more widely, as if his characters, Alfie Candlemas, Ray McPhee, Rifka, and of course, Jeremy DeLacy, uh, had won their battle for Aboriginal people, as if Prindy's hybrid potential had been recognised as the nation's future. Despite the novel's ultimately bleak conclusion in which Prindy, Siravasta and De Lacy all die, the novel is infused with Herbert's own wistful, uncertain desire for an alternative past and future. <laughs>